0: Thank you. How am I doing here, guys? It, like the the, the 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 eleven and younger crowd. How am I doing? Bad. <laughs> yeah. Why? Yes. I did seventeen instead of instead of ten. Right. Yeah. It, 3 plus 1 plus 2 plus 4 does not equal 17, right? It doesn't add up. Try as I may, I can't make those four numbers equal 17. It's really the same way with our passage this morning. If you add up what Peter says are the circumstances that we will face as Christians— the life that he says we're called to doesn't add up. Mistreatment plus harsh insults plus harm plus suffering equals, well, we would expect if this is the circumstances that you're facing. If this is the circumstances that Peter's churches are facing, it would be retaliation. If they did that to me, well, then I'm going to do that back to them. Remember eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Fear. Because frankly, sometimes we're not ready to fight it out. Sometimes it's, instead of fight, it's flight. And we're shrinking back when that attack comes when that mistreatment comes, when that insult bears down on us. Frankly, whether it's fight or flight, it's a troubled heart. And each and every one of those three is something that Peter will acknowledge in our passage is what will result in a context of mistreatment and harsh insults and harm and suffering. But the equation that Peter puts forward for us this morning looks something like this. It it does, yes. Mistreatment plus harsh insults plus harm plus suffering. And he's going to say it equals... Unity and sympathy and love and tenderheartedness and humility and blessing and peace and gentleness and excitement to do good. And we'd look at that and we'd say, that doesn't add up. Because frankly, if I'm treated that way on one side of the equal sign, I'm not seeing how it adds up on the other side. When we are wronged or threatened, we either want to strike back or shrink back, and that is exactly what the churches that Peter was writing to were facing. They had threats, insults, and the real prospect of physical harm and increased suffering. As Christians in an antagonistic world, they felt threatened, besieged, endangered, Perhaps that's the way you feel, brothers and sisters. If you listen to the news, when you go to school, when you head to work, when you recognize shifts in the culture, when you feel more and more that you're on the outside instead of on the inside. More and more like you don't fit. More and more like the other. And as other, you can feel afraid. When you are mistreated, you're tempted to retaliate. When you're threatened, you're tempted to shrink back. But either way, it's upsetting. And to respond the way that God calls us to can seem impossible. Let's read our passage here this morning. First Peter, we're going to continue on in chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 8. And I will read through the beginning of verse 18 because, Chad, I'm going to steal part of your verse for next week, okay? Let's read beginning in verse 8. It says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing for whoever desires to love life and see good days let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit let him turn away from evil and do good let him speak peace let him seek peace And pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ. May be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God." Peter is exhorting the churches in modern-day Turkey. The churches of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, so a number of congregations, about a, a circumstance that they're all facing at one level or another. This is an open and outright systematic government persecution like would come in in, in another generation for those churches. This This was in the family. This was in the extended family and in the home. This was in the workplace. This was in the marketplace. And what was being heard were in whispers and insults on the side. Oh, there he goes again. Oh, yeah, he, he used to hang out with us. Not anymore. Did you see what they're doing now? All by themselves over there. They get together on Sundays. Why won't they worship with us anymore? What do they have to prove? And it kind of started out on the periphery. And then it gets a little louder. A little more vocal. To the point where when Peter is addressing them in the middle of his letter, where we're at today, there's the potential for open harm. There's threat in these words. No longer on the edges. Now this is right out in the open. So who are you to say this as a Christian? And Peter is telling them that they are called to have a certain perspective toward mistreatment, toward harm. What response has God called us to have to mistreatment and hardship? I get this word called here from the end of verse 9. He says, don't repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. He tells them, that they should seek God's favor and grace for all, even those who mistreat and insult them. They're supposed to seek God's favor and grace for all. Verses 8 and 9, it's really hard to figure out who Peter is telling them to have these attributes toward. It seems like verse 8 is directed to the church among the church. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, probably like Christian brothers, sympathy to see one another's hardships and needs, brotherly love, which would seem this is within the Christian community, a tender heart to recognize the issues, the problems that others are facing, and to be sensitive, compassionate to it, and to have a humble mind, like to not think too much of yourself in the midst of the Christian community. And then verse 9, although it could apply within the Christian community, we would hope not, but it seems as though these words are to encourage them in their perspective toward those who are outside the church. He says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling because that's what they're getting. They're getting evil treatment. They're getting reviling and they're supposed to seek God's favor and grace for everyone, even those who have mistreated them. The word blessing means to tell someone what good you want God to do for them. So, a typical blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and give you peace, right? So you're saying to the person, not praying to God at that point, but you're saying in the audience of God, this God, this is what I want God to do for you. If Prayer would be directed to God and we could do that publicly like we've done this morning where we can say, God, do this for your people. And we say it in the, in the hearing of God's people. A blessing is where you're telling someone directly what it is you hope God will do for them, but you're calling that blessing upon them. You're saying, you're saying, I hope God does this for you. May God grant you his favor and blessing. And that's what Peter's telling them they should say when someone says that they're stupid or they're foolish or any other insult that would cut to the heart. Rather than returning that reviling, that hard insult, they're to bless. Not only that, Peter is telling these churches, he's telling us, that we should be zealous to do what is good, even with the threat of harm and hardship. If you just look there, uh, at what the ESV has made another paragraph Uh, verses 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What Peter's saying is, we wouldn't expect that somebody's going to outright harm you if what you're offering them is goodness, kindness. Like, that that should be out of the ordinary. He does, though, say in chapter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So while he's saying that in general, when we do good to others, we shouldn't expect that they would reply in harm, physical harm to us. But at the same time, we shouldn't be surprised that trials are a part of the Christian life it's a part of who we are as Christ followers he says here zealous for what is good it means enthusiastic uh, some translations say devoted if you get really excited about doing good for others yeah don't expect that they're going to reply back with harm and a physical beating But then he makes this qualification in verse 14. He says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake. Like, so don't expect that, but even if you do, you will be blessed. This is the the call that we have on us as Christians to not reply in kind when we're treated wrongly. And you probably this morning could just think back in your own history if, you're, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, a relationship you've had where someone's written you off because you've now gotten religion. You're now treated differently oh, because you're one of them. You start to hear the snide remark yeah, he won't be able to do that because he's on church on Sunday. And it's really easy to reply with, with some smart remark, some, some retort, some sarcastic remark that, that puts up the, the line of defense, right? Protects you. Fight or flight. Maybe you're the kind that just retreats into the corner, doesn't have anything to say, even when they keep talking about you. What Peter is calling on the churches to do, what Peter is calling on us to do, sometimes can seem impossible. So let me go back to my equation, young mathematicians. You helped me out. The first time I did it wrong, Yes, 3 plus 1 plus 4 plus 6 does not equal 17. But if I want it to equal 17, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? Young mathematicians, yes. What do I have to do? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I got to add something more into the equation to balance this thing out, right? Equals kind of stands in the middle like a scale, right? Right? And when you're teaching young ones math, you're trying to tell them, okay, on this side, it adds up this and this, and then even starting into some basic algebra. Like, so then on this side, it has to equal the same, right? So if we've got 17 on one side and we got the three plus one plus two plus four on the other side, we're going to have to add something more over here to get things to balance out, right? Okay. I think... That's what Peter's trying to help us to do this morning, is to balance out the equation. Because what he's saying is mistreatment, insult, harm, they will come. And what we are called to do as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is not reply in kind. Instead of reviling, we are to bless. Instead of pride, we're to have humility. Humility. Instead of being divisive, we're supposed to have unity of mind. Instead of being heartless, we're supposed to be tenderhearted. And it just seems like this whole equation's out of balance, like things don't add up. And what Peter, I think, is going to do in this passage for all of us this morning is to show how the, the equation balances. What else we have to add into this equation so that things add up? Because apart from these few truths that we're going to look at this morning, they don't. And like the sermon's been entitled, we live lives that otherwise don't add up unless we look at what Peter has for us this morning. So why is it that you and I can respond to mistreatment and hardship without fear and retaliation. Because we've already read there at, the very, be, at the, the very end of verse 14, he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Live this way, but don't react that way when that trouble comes. How, or rather, why can we respond that way? I think Peter gives us three reasons from this passage. First, because we await a future blessing. Verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are on the are open to their prayer. Uh, the very end of verse 9, he said, We should bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So already he's used this word blessing two times at the end of verse 9, right? And if we follow him, again in the verses we already read, uh, he tells he tells people, at the, the, the churches here at the end of verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, what? Blessed, right? So where, where is this blessing that Peter's talking about? What blessing is this that we should expect if we reply with blessing instead of cursing when we're reviled? Some some people who read this would understand this quotation from the passage that Pastor Pastor Chad read to us, verses 10 through 12, and saying, the blessing we're looking for is right now. It's immediate. They'd say, look, don't you desire to have a good life? Don't you desire to see good days? Well, then all you gotta do is keep your tongue from evil, keep your lips from speaking deceit, Turn away from evil and do good, seek peace and pursue it, blessing. There's tons of times I've heard passages like Psalm 34 preached in the African context where it's like all God wants to do is bless you. I was just about ready to go off in Swahili, but I won't. <laughs> um, the, the, the preaching of the name it and claim it prosperity gospel says just do what God says and you're going to roll in the dough. You want to get out of this poverty and this hardship? Oh, just, just, just do the good that God tells you to and wait long, just a, just a little longer and it's coming. All of the blessing, it's the pipeline coming right down to you. And it isn 't just in Africa that this is preached. this is right down our street corners. There are men that are making millions in preaching a gospel of wealth and prosperity and blessing and in Tanzania, very often it 's it's, it's preached as, as the way to get out of the hole. poverty 's so bad, n- no handhold or foothold to get out of this hole of poverty so if you just do this and this and this religiously, well then, then you're fine. Just have enough faith. And blessing is coming. In the West, it's very often preached to excuse our excess. So then, rather than saying, do this and this and this so that you can be blessed, it's more like, look at how much God has blessed me and I'm just going to keep getting blessed. And so the person continues to accumulate and accumulate and accumulate, all marking that as God's blessing upon them. And what's striking about this is just how different that gospel sounds to the one that Peter's preaching in our text this morning. Because he's saying, if you're a Christian, Expect hard times. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been rich Christians or that God doesn't want there to be rich Christians. The New Testament addresses that too. But the point is that we can't do this one-for-one equation and say, if I act this way, blessings are coming. That's not what the Bible teaches in the New Testament. There are many passages throughout the Old Testament they talk about God's covenant blessings upon his people Israel to demarcate true faith in the people of Israel from, from the false faiths around. And they were to announce to people come, worship this God. And they were to see the distinctness. Probably the peak of it was Solomon's reign, right? When people are flooding to to, to Israel, to say, wow, look at this people. Let's find out about this religion. There was a special covenant that God made with Israel, and Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy specifically spells out the blessings and the cursings related to the law. Most of us in this room are Gentiles, outside of the people of God. We have been incorporated into God's promises. We have been blessed Because we've been included in a salvation that God intended to prepare through the people of Israel to include all the world. It is wrong for us to appropriate every one of the blessings that was given to Israel in the covenant that God made with them in that period and say that one for one they equate in my life now and then demand of God that he gives me what I'm saying he should give me today. Name it and claim it. So is that what Peter is doing here? Is that what he's doing here in our passage? I would argue no. And the reason why first is that he uses this word at the end of verse 9, Bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Obtain is a fine translation of this word. Another translation would be to inherit. Like, this is what you get at the end, all right? Uh, not only that, but within the context of First Peter, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 3, it's not far for you if you're reading in your print Bible, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Hope, remember that word, hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept on earth for you. No. It says, kept in heaven for you. His point is that those who have been saved by the grace of God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord have a hope that is coming and they are waiting. By God's grace, they are waiting patiently for the blessing that will come. If God gives us blessing in this life, we praise him. If we face suffering, we praise him. But ultimately, what's being held out here I think it is a future blessing. And even to that, I think the ESV did well to translate the third time uh, that our English versions say blessed, there at the end of verse 14, when it says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. The word here is the same one that, that, that Jesus used in his Beatitudes happy, blessed. And it was even in that context that Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you and when they revile you for my name's sake. What's being held out here for us is a future blessing. Now there's a point of application here for us as Christians to consider. Without heaven the life that we are called to live does not make sense. I'll repeat it again. Without heaven, the life that we are called to live doesn't make sense. 1 Corinthians 15, 19, in the context of, of Paul arguing that the resurrection is so important to the Christian faith. He says, if the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is bunk, not worth anything, vain. Without the resurrection to new life, we are the most to be pitied. Paul said in that verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen: if in Christ we have hope, remember that word, hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What he's telling us is the Christian life that we are called to live is one that would be pitiable if heaven is not our home. Now, this cuts deep, especially for us as American Christians, because we have to ask the question, Are we living in a way that would make sense if heaven doesn't exist? Are we living in a way that would make sense if heaven doesn't exist? You're not going to be living a pitiable life if the life you're living is just fine as long as there's not a resurrection, or if there's not a resurrection. His point is to say that our hope is in a future blessing. And trials come what may, we trust in God. We bless because we're expecting blessing from God. Jesus said, great is your reward in heaven. Not here on earth. Are we staking our lives on the truthfulness of a life hereafter? Or even to cut more deeply to what we're going to look at in verse 15. If an unbeliever is watching your life and seeing the way you're living, would he call for an audit? Would he say, uh, "Sorry, excuse me." Uh, I just insulted you, and you did an insult back pardon me, haven't you noticed how hard I'm making your life at work? <laughs> Why is it that you're so nice? Like, we would expect that they would be calling an audit if our hope is in heaven and not here on earth. Because reviling for reviling, evil for evil, means that we're, we're trying to settle the score Now. And we're not expecting that God's going to chime in at the end. We expect that we have to demand the blessing now. And we're not getting it. So we revile back. We give evil back. Christian brother or sister, please consider with me whether your hope is in a blessing in the here and now, or whether you are looking to the future. And evaluate your life. even just, It doesn't have to be right now. This week. Take some time to think about how this affects your money. What does your use of money say about where your hope is? That does not mean we should not enjoy God's good gifts on this earth. Don't misunderstand me. Everything... That was created is good, Paul told Timothy. And it's supposed to be used with the word in prayer. Like we can sanctify good things on this earth and enjoy them for God's glory. So do not misunderstand me when I say this. But the way we spend our money, where's the balance? Does it it appear that we are looking forward to a heavenly home where our treasures are laid in heaven, where moth and rust won't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal? Or does it look like we're just perfectly fine and contented with what we have in the here and now thanks, even if the gospel isn't true? Time. How we use our time. What is... What does that say about where our hope is? Because some of us are of the kind where we would say, yeah, you need some help? Here's a check. Or we don't do checks now. You know, like, let me send you some Apple Pay. Um, it, because what we, what we have is time. What we don't have enough of is time. So money, no problem. I'm giving it away left and right, but just don't expect me to get involved. I've got my own things to do. And you, you saw in Peter's admonitions, finally, all of you, verse 9, 8, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. I like think he's talking about compassion, but that doesn't just involve donations. It, it, it does involve generosity of the, the time that God's budgeted us on this earth. The way you spend your time, how does that testify to where you're, you're looking for blessing? What is it that you're, if, if you did one of those time logs like all of those, uh, like all of those productivity planner people, teach you to do, you're going you're gonna to get your Excel spreadsheet and every cell is going to be 15 minutes for the day and you're going to do Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and then you're going to color code what you did so that you could see where you spent your time and what you were doing with it. Huh. <laughs> I won't even talk about what that would look like if I was doing it in Africa. like Three hours waiting in the bank line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we'll code that blue. Um, if you had a time budget like that, a time log that you kept, and you were just able to see, and maybe we color-coded it in two different ways. Focus on the here and now, blessing, seeking now, and coded it, blessing in the future, waiting for God to provide the reward that only He will on the final day. Oh, I... I'm just standing up in front of you saying that I wouldn't like to look at my time log all the time. And now, again, I'm qualifying this because I don't want you to hear that Dan is saying, "Don't fix the car because the car's broken down." And that's an earthly thing where moth and rust will destroy, and thieves break it and steal. So don't do. You can do that for God's glory too, right? But I'll just admit that there, there are some challenges that I have faced in the last several months, hugely in this area, because I've been doing great commission work in Africa, and I could connect almost everything to saying, I fixed the car so I can stay here. Well, what happens when I'm not there anymore, and I can't be? Now I have to figure out another motivation besides, I do this so that I can stay in Tanzania and preach the gospel because I can't be there to do that. So now, I'm having to check myself all the time. When something breaks, I'm like, I don't want to mess with that. Well, the motivation can be to fix the storm door because I am serving and blessing others, showing kindness, compassion, and concern for my family. And, anticipating that God in His good grace sees that and and, and recognizes it as for Him. So, I qualify that. Don't misunderstand me. There's probably more things you could log in the, the blessing for later category if you understand that qualification. But take an audit, because the world is. And that's what Peter's saying in verse 15. Not only should we respond to mistreatment and hardship uh, without fear and retaliation because we await a future blessing, but also because we honor Christ as Lord of our lives. And that's verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. I got this whole equation idea um, from this phrase here uh, when he says, to make a defense or give an answer, some translations would say, to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, some translations could, could, and I think appropriately say for this idiom, uh, demand an accounting for the hope that is in you. It's an accounting term. Uh, they're wanting an audit. In Tanzania, uh, in June, I was, uh, I was preparing a financial report for our uh, orphan care ministry with our financial manager. We spent hours preparing this thing and then sent it off to the auditor because it has to get audited before it can go to the government. Gets to the auditor, I'm already back here, and the financial manager texts me and says, Dan, uh, the auditor says that we should have $10,000 more than we do. And I'm thinking, we balanced. Like, we went through all of that. We balanced. How can we, how could, how, how could we be expected to have $10,000 more than what we were expected to? Well, thankfully, after three days of, like, heart attack, uh, the auditor got back and said, oh, there was one of the ledgers that I hadn't put in. I hadn't accounted for that. When you put that in, it all balances. (laughs) Like, thank you. Um, People are going to ask for an audit if we're living the way we should. And Peter is telling the saints here that we should honor Christ as Lord in our lives. Now the phrase here, as it's translated in the ESV, says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, which is great. Uh, It it actually could be said, but in your hearts, sanctify Christ as Lord. Uh, It's going back to Isaiah 8. There's this time in Israel, well, in Judah's life, where King Ahaz is on the throne, and there's a threat from Israel and Aram. They're partnering up and they're going to crash down on Jerusalem. And when this starts, God tells his people through Isaiah these words For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk away in the way of his people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, let him be your dread. He's not quoting, but he's paraphrasing, I think, Isaiah's prophecy. Only now, instead of it applying to Yahweh, the God of Israel, he's saying, this is Jesus. Jesus is Lord, God. But I think he's saying more than just Jesus is Lord. The point that he's making is he's supposed to be Lord in you and Lord in me. The question is not whether Jesus is deity or not. The question is whether you and I are living in our hearts like Jesus is Lord. You tracking with me? Back in the 90s, there was this whole lordship salvation debate. Don't need to get into it. But one thing I can say for sure from this passage is that Jesus is supposed to be the Lord and master of you and me every day. And we are, in, because of this command, we're supposed to be making him Lord again and again and again. Because every trial and every temptation that you and I face, every hardship, every mistreatment, every insult is a challenge to fear someone else. To be afraid of someone else. To reverence and revere someone else in our hearts. And we are supposed to fear the Lord. And picking up on that whole theme from the Old Testament... Peter is making explicitly clear that Jesus is supposed to be king in you and he's supposed to be king in me. And that's one reason why we can deal with hardship and temptation is because that hardship, temptation, insult, mistreatment does not challenge the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. It may threaten our well-being, but it never threatens his kingdom. Seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness. He said, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Seek first his kingdom, not yours, not mine. Who is in command and control of your heart? one good question you could ask yourself this week relative to this point is what dominates your thoughts and affections? Like, what controls you? If you're someone that's given to anxiety and fear, there's always something to be worried about, right? There's always something to be afraid of. Well, but what if? But what What if? If that happens, not sure, maybe. We've already said in this context, these, people's, these people that Peter is writing to are probably not dealing with physical beatings yet. But there's the threat of it, and they have every reason at that point to be afraid. And he's saying to them, have no fear, but instead, set apart Christ as your Lord in your heart. And don't let those threats challenge his kingship in your life. Don't let it dominate. Set him apart as holy, different than any of those other challenges. The king is on his throne. We sang beautifully. I love it how God orchestrates all of this with the music. I didn't talk so much with John about it. But, like, the king and all of his beauty, right? He is on the throne. So when you're looking at that trial, that hardship, that circumstance, that threat at your well-being, look back at it and say, but Jesus reigns. And like an army general that gives a command, he creates the unity of the division, right? Right? Like, that's why you have a commander, is so that everybody marches at the same time and everybody goes the same direction and everybody's following what they're supposed to be doing at the time they're supposed to be doing it. Uh, And Peter here had told us that we're to have unity of mind. And I think the only way that the church of God has unity is when we all, as individuals, are putting Jesus in his proper place in our hearts. And then he says this is to be done. We're to give an answer for the hope that's in us, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, the word respect translated here should probably be, re- be fear, I think in this context, because what he's saying is gentleness to them and fear to the Lord. Because the phrase that moves on is saying having a good conscience. Before God, are you setting apart Christ as holy in your mind and in your heart? Because he's the only one that sees what's going on inside of you. I can't, others can't, but your conscience is testifying to you uh, of his right and wrong. You should not be saying to yourself, but what will they think? Or what will they say? You should be saying to yourself, what would the Lord Jesus think? What would the Lord Jesus say? Finally. Finally. We can respond to mistreatment and hardship without fear and retaliation because we receive God's undeserved goodness through Jesus Christ. And that's just verse 18. And I will not take too much time to elaborate this because it's part of Chad's passage next week. But he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And I've been talking a lot to Christians here because this passage is addressed to Christians But this is an appeal to anyone uh, who who is not yet a believer in Jesus. That Jesus has done everything that's needed for you in all of your sinfulness to be accepted by God. To bring you to God. To receive that blessing prepared for all his saints. And uh, to, to continue to live under his guidance and lordship for the rest of your life. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Uh, brother and sister, I'd just make a point here to say this word also is really, really important. Because what he's saying is Christ suffered for sins to bring us to God. And there's that four connecting this verse to what we've just looked at. What he's saying is your suffering, your hardship, your mistreatment is also a way for you to bring others to God in the same way that Jesus brought you to God through his suffering. Now, that's not to say you suffer for someone else's sins. But his point is to say that we can redeem our suffering, our hardship for evangelism. The reason, the reason we're to live a life that doesn't add up is because we want people to look at us and say, well, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. And you can say, well, yeah, it wouldn't unless unless you knew that there's, there's a future hope in heaven. Unless you knew that Jesus is Lord on the throne. Unless you knew that everything has been accomplished by Jesus through suffering. So even the suffering I face can be redeemed. Whose actions are you reacting to? Could be a reflection question for you this week. Are you responding to the hardships that are created by other people? Or are you responding to what Jesus has done for you through his cross work? Which one do you keep in the forefront of your mind? Is this what Jesus did for me? Or is it what Joe is doing to me? And whichever one you put in the forefront of your mind from day to day, will determine how this equation plays out in your life. You will have the power to seemingly do the impossible and reply with blessing when you've received cursing. When you've received mistreatment and harm, you will have the ability by God's grace and in his power to reply with goodness and gentleness and kindness like he's instructed. But not because of you but because of the power that mightily works within you. Jesus didn't love you because you were righteous, because you were good. Jesus didn't repay evil for evil with you or reviling for reviling with you. No, he blessed you. If you're a believer in Jesus, he's blessing you and he will bless you. And as you meditate on that and put that at the forefront of your thoughts, if you're reacting to Jesus' action rather than to the actions of others, you by God's grace will have the strength and motivation to reply the way that Peter exhorts them to. To respond to mistreatment and hardship without fear and retaliation. I'd just uh, like to close um, with uh, a narrative of a lady named Helen Rosevere. Uh, I'm not sure if you n- recognize this name. Uh, she was an English missionary physician uh, in African Congo. Uh, she went in 1953. Uh, in 1964, there was what was called the Simba Revolution. Uh, it was a major revolt, caused a huge civil war. Uh, she suffered terribly. Uh, she and other missionaries... Uh, were taken captive for several weeks, mistreated, reviled. Um, she, was, she was violently violated twice by soldiers. Um, and oftentimes afterwards, she survived. Uh, she was asked by people what she suffered for Jesus. Um, she said, "'During the Simba uprising in the Congo, "'I was violated twice.'" Government soldiers came into my bungalow, ransacked it, and grabbed me. I was beaten and savagely kicked, losing my back teeth through the boot of a rebel soldier. They broke my glasses so I couldn't see to protect myself from the next blow. Then at one time, two army officers took me into my bedroom. She continues. Um, They dragged me into a clearing after that, tied me into a tree, And stood around laughing. And while I was there, beaten, humiliated, and violated, someone brought out the only existing handwritten manuscript of a book I had been writing about God's work in the Congo over an 11-year period. They put it on the ground in front of me, and they burned it. She says, I asked myself, Is it worth it? Right, like she's doing the accounting here. Is it worth it? Eleven years of my life poured out in selfless service for the African people, and now this. And as she was pondering the cost of serving Jesus in that context, uh, she says she, she sensed what, what, what she would say is, 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 is her speaking to herself what she knows God says is true. She's not claiming a divine revelation here. But she says, uh, I felt as though God was saying to me, my daughter, the question is not, is it worth it? The question is, am I worthy? Am I the Lord Jesus, who gave his life for you, worthy for you to make this kind of sacrifice for me. She says, God broke my heart. I looked up and said, oh yes, Lord Jesus, yes, it is worth it for you, or worthy. And she concludes, when you ask the right question, you'll always know that he's absolutely absolutely worthy of anything you can give him or do for him. When she sat down and Sought to balance the equation. She said, He's worthy. She's sanctifying Christ in her heart. Right? Setting him up as Lord. Looking to an eternal blessing. And then ultimately, remembering that all that Jesus did for her in the gospel. So yes, the life you're called to live doesn't add up. Unless... You factor in eternal blessing, the lordship of Christ, and God's undeserved favor for you in Jesus' death. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Thank you for for your word and how it teaches us. Um, I pray that you would empower us to, to deal with any circumstance that you would ordain. If it's God's will that we should suffer. Um, Lord, I pray, uh, even if it's not physical harm that we face, but mistreatment or insult, uh, even threats, uh, that we as a church, that we as individual Christians here uh, would, would anchor ourselves in, in these reasons that Peter's given us, uh, that we would be able to look to the future and, and anticipate your blessing, that we would look pack, back to what Jesus did on the cross for us and find strength. And, and that every day we would be putting you on the throne of our hearts. Uh, until Jesus comes, we pray that you would strengthen us uh, to live, come what may. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.